0: From Stettin, in the Baltic, to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. An attempt is being made by the Russians in Berlin to build up a quasi-communist party in their zone of occupied Germany by showing special favors to groups of left-wing German leaders, Whatever conclusions may be drawn from these facts, in the facts they are, this is certainly not the liberated Europe we fought to build up, nor is it one which contains the essentials of permanent peace. Go forth.
1: Yep. Onto the breach. Yeah. <laughs> so we're... We're. This is the first time we're recording with two microphones.
0: Yeah. Well, in a while, we've had two microphones before. Yeah. But like, without this,
1: having to high five.
0: Yeah. Without the high fives are pretty great though. Good for team all building. time's sake. <laughs> <laughs> that was sad and, uh, we we're sitting across a very long table.
1: We're also recording from a new. secret location. That new
0: undisclosed undisclosed location. Yeah. <laughs> we've graduated from a basement though.
1: We have. <laughs> so we'll see if that's for better or for worse. Anyway, hello. Welcome back to Panastoria. My name is Jonah. And I'm Lindsay. And this
0: is season three. Um, um, if you haven't listened to our opening season three, another nonsense, that's okay. Uh, I mean, we'd prefer if you did, but you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Um, <laughs> We're yeah. laying on the guilt here. But anyway, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is uh season three is going to be a little different just a little quick rundown uh keep this fast but we're going to be doing a theme season since um the anniversary of the fall of communism in eastern europe is really coming up and we wanted to focus on some key events that happened and try a try a theme season see how that goes so we're going to start today with uh, the berlin wall
1: yep uh, as
0: everyone's f- favorite wall right yeah <laughs> no? okay. i don't know about that great wall of china probably probably. Yeah. So anyway. on,
1: on this day, and uh, and by on this day, I mean the day it's being released, not the day you're probably listening to it or the day that we're recording, uh, the Berlin Wall came down.
0: Too much cheering, adulation, and the sound of David Hasselhoff.
1: We'll get into that. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways,
0: now that I've completely derailed this. No, we're,
1: I just, we're, anyway, where do we need to begin? Well, we need to begin in Korea. No. It's, for those of you who still...
0: If you stuck with us since that episode. Yeah,
1: that stupid joke had a reason. But anyway, we Listen are... This is our pilot episode, if yeah, you understand. We will be starting just after the Second World War, when Germany was divided in four sections, essentially. The first occupation zone were the British, who were in Schleswig-Holstein, Lower Saxony and North Rhine-Westphalia. French were in the Rhineland, flats, Baden and Württemberg. I'm going to put you this last one, Hohenzollern. Germany. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's Germany. Uh, the Americans were in Bavaria, Hesse, Württemberg, Baden and Bremen.
0: Lucky bastards. Yeah,
1: really. They got they got the nice. They
0: got Bavaria.
1: They got Bavaria. They got, they got
0: the beer
1: producing part. Oh, that's all you, that's what you care about? <laughs> well, that's what they
0: cared about probably.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> that and it was gorgeous. I but, mean, it's also where the eagle's nest was. So there's yeah. that. And then finally, the Soviets were in Thuringia, Saxony, Saxony and Holt, Brandenburg and Mecklenburg. vorpommern Additionally, Luxembourg's 2nd Infantry Battalion were stationed in Bitburg and the 1st Battalion were in Saarburg in assistance to the French. So in technicality, Luxembourg had an occupation zone, which is a bit weird if you know what Luxembourg is. That is weird. (laughs) Tiny, tiny country. Additionally, Berlin was also separated into different sectors which was completely surrounded by the Soviet-occupied zone of Brandenburg. <laughs> and they were divided in the French boroughs of Wessing and Reichenberg in the northwest, the British in Tiergarten, Charlotteburg, Wilmer, Wilmersdorf, and Spandau in west-central, the Americans in Neulen, Kreuzberg, Tempelhof, Schonenberg, Steggaltz, and Zealendorf which is in the southwest, and then the Soviets were Meet, Presenlauerberg, Berg, Pankow Thaibense, Friedrichshain, Friedrichshan, Luxburg, Treptow and Copenhagen.
0: Well in the east, you, is it? it is not
1: going well, but I by all of our listeners who know us by now. I mean we called I it I
0: actually took it like, Three years of German.
1: So. Okay, well, then leave me alone. <laughs> I took French. I
0: but did it, too. Well, get <laughs> out of here. Uh, I don't remember much of it, 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 As you know, I
1: mean, we called something the Georgiosaurus because we couldn't, couldn't pronounce <laughs> it properly. <laughs> <forgot> so <laughs> get out, get off my back. <laughs> I forgot about the Georgiosaurus. <laughs> anyway. Now, so the Soviets completely controlled Berlin following the Victory in Europe Day. So from May to June 1945, and then knowing that there was a plan for eventual occupation by the other Allies, the Soviet troops razed much of Berlin's industrial and transport sectors and uprooted railway tracks as a means of, quote, unquote, reparations for the destruction caused in the Soviet Union. Makes sense. It does, but it also would make a lot of sense that they just wanted to fuck over the Allied occupied zones. Yeah,
0: Duh. It, That's exactly what they
1: were doing. I don't have any ill feelings about bad-talking the Soviets. Yeah, no. Yeah. The initial plan was for the creation of a single Allied count, Control Council. However, these plans broke down due to disagreements between the Allied powers. Surprise, surprise. No shit. Yeah. So the Americans and British were actually desperate for cooperation between the Allies and the Germans. However, the French had hoped to dismantle Germany into multiple independent states, much like it was before the German Empire was founded. Oh, of course they did. Yeah. They're so, really
0: petty. The French are super petty.
1: They can't be, uh, Yeah. I mean, obviously we bad talk everybody people. I don't even know if we have any listeners in France. Probably not. <laughs> but we'll find out. The
0: level of English is not ideal. Uh, yeah.
1: So the so um and the we Soviet love, what's that? We love France, but we do love France. It's just reality. Yeah. So, uh, the Soviets had already begun implementing a Marxist political economic system into the local governance. As you know, they do.
0: As well.
1: <laughs> Furthermore, the Soviets, British, and Americans agreed to accommodate over 6 million Germans who were expelled from former German territory in the East, and also those who were denaturalized from Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Yugoslavia. However, the French only agreed to allow Germans who were returning home who had lived in but their homes were destroyed in germany and did not agree to accommodate the denaturalized citizens which is a very much of a dick move and um, of all the people i can blame, i probably blame the most is probably de gaulle
0: yeah he's not a good person (laughs) it's interesting because this is kind of a slight tangent but it does relate um the french i mean it's no secret that the french really didn't like germany after the war especially after both wars um no secret there and I mean they were petty after World War one the Treaty of Versailles you know did some, some
1: shit yeah that was mostly <laughs> them to be honest
0: <laughs> kind of created the whole scenario of World War II uh and then anyways um I was listening to this audiobook about a, uh an old Celtics player uh, Bob Cousy played for back when the Celtic like in the 50s when um the Celtics were winning titles like yearly. Anyway, um, kind of the beginning of professional basketball. And it was his his parents were French and they had em or they had immigrated to the United States from from France after World War One. And his mother, like it they I was listening to this chapter and they're describing his mother as being just like they called it racist basically towards Germans, but she was also just racist. Um as <laughs> the French were are <laughs> um,
1: I have some pretty bad things to, some more bad things to say about the French so, yeah.
0: so anyway th- I think the implication was she's just a racist but like primarily really hated Germany and uh, Germans and she would always um, and it was weird because her husband was French but from outside Lorraine and so she basically like beat him because she think he was a German and like call him a German and she hated him it was a whole thing anyway um, it just was a interesting thinking about that because in relation to the French just not taking, you know, anyone in cuz it's like no, nope, you're German. Fuck you. <laughs> Basically.
1: In German territory, too. Exactly. They're just occupied.
0: Yeah, well. You're going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the dick.
1: Yeah. So all four occupiers were responsible for governing their respective zones. In the American zone, Dwight Eisenhower who
0: Supreme
1: uh, Allied Commander. Yep, Supreme Allied Alli, Alli Commander. Still
0: the most badass job title. And Ike. We
1: like Ike. We like Ike. He actually ordered a strict non-fraternalization policy between American troops and the Germans, which they were gradually relaxed in steps within Germany and Austria until it was actually completely dropped in September. So fun fact, Austria was also divided but the soviets completely left it alone after they left because they honestly didn't really give a rats about yeah. austria. Unfortunately, the thing about austria is one of those countries that like it was once a great great empire and it was reduced to what it like it's what it is now a small country. But it used to be one of the most powerful it used to be probably the most powerful fa- royal family in Europe.
0: <laughs> and also the most genetically messed up.
1: Yeah, well that's what
0: Really brought it all <laughs> <laughs> down.
1: That's in the end, like the, to be honest, like until recently, that's what's brought like a lot of royal families down. Yeah. I mean, even the British were like, okay, we should probably relax. We things. should
0: probably start expanding the gene pool.
1: Famine became actually a major threat following the Second World War, and a strict rationing. Because yeah,
0: yeah, they set Ukraine on fire. <laughs> yeah. They had the
1: but they had this. But I like within Germany I, I itself.
0: Know, but... That's because they didn't produce a lot of their own wheat no <laughs> In the first place no and that and Ukraine a lot of them being the, set on fire really led to some yeah problems and that, that a pretty. lot
1: and a lot of the fertile ground was Fucked up. yeah by shells like this <laughs> yeah big time so they had to enact strict rationing by 1946 and berlin particularly became dependent on the black market for essential supplies including food you guys remember our Korean War episode, we talked at length—or I talked at length, too long—about the Berlin Airlift. Mistakes so, were made. But. Lucky you. I'm not talking about it here, but basically, the Berlin Airlift really was important because,
0: literally, the Americans airdropped food.
1: Yeah, they airdropped food like every second they were dro- dropping, airdropping food, and it was essential to keep West Berlin alive. Yeah. Because literally, if they hadn't done it, they, the citizens either would have starved or would have fallen under Soviet hands. So, so uh, occupation soldiers actually ended up taking advantage over their control of the food and cigarettes to convince local German women to provide sexual favors in exchange for supplies. These women became known as Frau Bait.
0: Yeah, And pretty common. In, in, in post-war? Yeah.
1: And uh And for all the bad talking we were doing about the French, this was mostly the Americans doing oh, this. Oh,
0: yeah. For
1: sure. It's actually still a bit of a...
0: The Russians were still the most rapey, but...
1: They were the, the w- most everything. True. Which we'll get into. Yeah. In a moment. Always. But yeah. I mean,
0: to be fair, they also... Saw, well, not actually, really, we're about. Fair. They did just suffer the hardest, though. Yeah, we're actually
1: about to get to <laughs> life. What was life was like in the Allied <laughs> Occupied Zones, because... Needless to say, it sucked. It's
0: not
1: great. <laughs> Although, to be fair, in the British and American occupied zones, it was a lot better because they had more money yeah. and they were actually a bit more will- willing to fix things up.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that was, well, the Marshall Plan literally was about money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throw money at the problem, it'll solve it.
1: Yep. So, Allied posters literally scrawled like we're sprawn all over the city with real photos of the holocaust and the atrocities so like the most i've i've seen images of these posters they're pretty graphic and i guess kind of rightfully so it's, it's disturbing but it's basically like we need to let the german people know what the Nazis were doing to their country. Pretty much. So basically, these posters sprawled everywhere, and of course, there was a mix of other things. that The Soviets had their own. <laughs> Over 100,000 German citizens were placed in internment camps as a, as security threats, and it basically was just a preemptive thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, they might be a threat to security. 66,000 children were born to women who had relations with Allied soldiers, and most of these children were shunned by German citizens, particularly those of African American descent.
0: Happened in every country. To be fair, they were
1: also, yeah, and to be fair, they were also largely shunned by Americans.
0: Yeah.
1: Because that was uh, before. really,
0: Really common thread in wartime in general. Yeah. Wartime babies always get
1: fucked. Yeah, they really do. So the French were known to be brutal as their country suffered under Nazi occupation. There was a general essence of revenge within their minds. No shit,
0: the French really. I mean,
1: they did the same thing after the First World War. No. Yeah.
0: So petty. I, I know.
1: Yeah. And the Soviets were regarded as the most oppressive and brutal, pursuing the harshest penalties for Nazis. I mean, I can't really blame them for the, the harshest. Men- yeah, for, towards the Nazis but towards the citizens, the Red Army soldiers were also reportedly rather ill-tempered. They were really rapey. Big surprise. I'm about to get to that. 800,000 reports of rape in the first couple years of occupation were recorded.
0: And that like followed the Russians the entire time, Like it followed the Red Army the whole way through the war. Like Every time um, the Russians were coming to liberate somewhere, people were like, oh fuck, let's mm-hmm. get out of here. Because
1: They knew. The British were actually regarded as the most gentlemanly, quote unquote, with very minimal number of rapes reported within their sector, and they're actually apparently rather polite and courteous towards the German citizens. As stated before, some Americans would take advantage of their control of the supplies to coerce women into sexual favors, and it was reported an estimate estimate 11,000 rapes took place in the sector. Rape in the French sector was initially unheard of, but in the years following occupation, it was found rape was a major problem, with which was covered up and even tolerated by French officers. From what I can read, apparently the French were particularly bad. Yeah, they were this. in
0: other wars too. I mean, it seems like it's kind of like, I don't want to say it's cultural because it's, it's not, but like it seems like in the wars, like there's a thread, like they're usually bad in other wars, and like. I mean, I think most countries are
1: guilty of it, though. Yeah, we're about to be banned from France, but... Eh. Anyway, Macron seems like it.
0: Honestly. He's good?
1: Care. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> however, of course, the most brutal of the bunch was the Soviets. I... There was way too much to cover on this. I initially wanted to keep this as short as possible, but after talking about the br- Soviet brutality, it ended, it ended up being almost four pages long. So here we are. But I... People want to know more, and if it, you can actually stomach it, because I had a hard time it, stomaching it, read A Woman in Berlin.
0: It's pretty fucked up.
1: It is a, <clears throat> one of the most disturbing books I've ever read in my life. Yeah. And it's real, which is, which makes it worse. It's fucked. Which is why I actually would say it probably is the most disturbing book I've ever read. It's like, the, wow, this is what humans are capable of. And trust me, it's brutal. <laughs> Yeah. I'm, down, I'm not over-exaggerating it at equal. all. Yeah. Soon after, the Federal Republic of Germany, also better known as West Germany, was established on May 23, 1949, with its capital in Bonn. It was set up as a federal democracy with a president, chancellor, and parliament in the, the Bundestag. France established what is known as the Saar Protectorate in the occupied zone, which is, was a puppet of France. And it remained, in, it remained a thing until 1957. The German Democratic Republic, better known as East Germany, was established on October 7th, 1949. 19- basically, It uh, was established on October 7th, 1949, as a single party communist republic ruled by the Socialist Unity Party, which is better known as the SED. It was initially started as a federation but later changed to a unitary government in 1952 (laughs) no the legislature was known as the volkshammer which i think is a pretty badass name (laughs) basically means the people's council yeah
0: not the people's hammer
1: no the capital in east berlin was in east berlin although the western allies did not accept the legitimacy of this but for all sake of simplicity, the capital was East Berlin. East and West Berlin remained divided, with West Berlin under the administration of West Germany, and as you guys are going to find out, that caused a fair bit of problems.
0: A really common thing after World War II is the Soviet-occupied zone was really awful. Um, People started to leave the East. Big shocker. So there was a large period of, or a large amount of Eastern emigration. So largely people just trying to get to any other zone but the American but the Soviet zone preferably the American zone or the British zone uh, obviously the French also had kind of a shitty reputation at this point I mean the biggest reason for this ultimately was because of the the occ- occupation of the Soviets so between 1945 or January 1945 and October 1946 the population of East Germany had fallen by 18.4% which is pretty significant <laughs> <laughs> um which And this, this included a big a big brain drain as well. A lot of educated people wanted to leave because, well, they saw where things were going. But anyways.
1: I mean, obviously, it also should be pointed out that a lot of people were leaving because they were still fighting between January and yeah, May. Yeah, totally. So there, we did, or the source that we used to get this from did have put that, that into account. caveat, yeah, yeah. that
0: makes sense. Mostly this migration was caused by a few different factors. Uh, first, citizens and military were fleeing because they wanted to avoid any interaction with the Soviet army, which makes sense. Really, at the beginning of that period, the Soviet army was in Germany, and so people were trying to get away. The relationship between the Soviets and the Nazis obviously was poor because of the whole communism and fascism thing, but like, <laughs> their propaganda against each other was really quite vicious, and the Nazis really like dehumanized the Soviets more than they dehumanized anybody else. They saw Slavs as on equal footing as Jews, they really hated them. I mean, the captured Russian prisoners built Auschwitz. And Soviet prisoners were treated far worse than any other prisoner of war. So it's really not surprising that when the Soviets started getting towards Germany, getting through Hungary, reports started making their way to Germany, what was happening in those places, and then on top of that, all of the conditioning that they'd experienced to hate Soviets and be terrified of them, basically led to them wanting to get the hell away as fast as possible. And to be fair to them, the Soviets were living up to their reputation because they were destroying everything on their way there. They pretty much left no stone unturned. They burned everything. They raped pill- and they raped and pillaged their way across Europe, essentially. Well, I guess technically liberating people, but... Mm. And there's also some German citizens who ultimately just foresaw the political climate being different after the war, being terrified of that, and not wanting to live in a Soviet-dominated state, which was definitely going to happen. A study was done by the IZA Institute of Labor Economics, and they found that 80% of the people who actually fled between 1946 and 1961 had never actually lived in a socialist regime. So they fled before the Soviets even got there, because their reputation preceded them, basically. But a large number of those people were leaving East Berlin into West Berlin. So most of the emigration actually literally just happened within Berlin. In 1950 after the GDR was officially established, the government began placing restrictions on emigration in order to curb the large flux of people leaving. Basically, the government of the GDRs found or er, saw that hey, we're a country now, we'd like the smart people to stay. We need them. Don't leave. And I mean, they need people ultimately. So they began a campaign of stigmatization against those who left. Basically, you left us, so we don't like you anymore. Uh, the term republic, er, republic Flux was essentially means desertion from the republic, was used to describe this mass emigration. So it was kind of a point of propaganda of like, well, we only want the people who are supposed to be here, and they're leaving, and they must be like traitors, traitors and, counter, and cowards. Count- and cowards. <laughs> it's not even a word. Nope. Uh, anyway, so the SED distributed a propaganda book in 1955, 1955 known as the Agitator's Notebook. Within it was a section titled, quote, He who leaves the German Democratic Republic joins the warmongers. Subtle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they weren't, the, the communist states weren't known for their, you know, catchy titles. They weren't really good at subtlety, Except for Marx and Engels. They really
0: had the subtlety of a sledgehammer.
1: Yeah, like, except for Marx and Engels. They were still cool, mostly.
0: Yeah. I mean, impressive beard, no less. <laughs> anyway. This book spoke of how the GDR was a construct of, quote, workers, farmers, and and creative intelligentsia, while West Germany, quote, represents the interests of the big banks, corporations, and landowners who have both economic and political power in their hands. The book defined the act of leaving the GDR as an act of political and moral backwardness and depravity. They called for an end of Eastern citizens to stop working in West Berlin as those who did are working with the warmongers.
1: That's one thing. Yeah, you could... (laughs) West East Berlin citizens were going and working freely in West Berlin.
0: At this time, yeah. yeah. And I mean, a lot of people, like, when the, I mean, we'll talk about the wall, but I mean, a lot of people, like, literally, like, apartment buildings were, like, half in West Berlin, half in East Berlin. Like, people were, like, going freely between, people's lives were in both parts of the city. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, people weren't really, like, naturally from West Germany or East Germany. There was really no split before the wall like culturally especially people were in both places in the city it wasn't different. And it's interesting too though because the Soviets had a similar policy essentially in the 80s and 90s when they started letting like a little bit of emigration from the Soviet Union they still basically had this policy of like sure you can leave but we're going to treat you like shit you can't contact anyone here goodbye. <laughs> like you're you know you don't exist to us anymore. So they kind of did the same thing. Anyway. Kind of childish, but, you know. Anyway, by 1961, an estimated 3 million people had managed to cross over into the West, where they were generally welcomed. That wasn't really the case after. Anyway, ultimately, these 3 million people made up roughly 20% of East Germany's population, so a lot of people left.
1: (laughs) You can see why alarm bells were going. Yeah.
0: Red flags were flying up at record pace. (laughs) Many of those who were emigrating were young and well-educated citizens, so the type of people you want to keep in your country. As a result the GDR's government grew concerned over the potential benefits to the west of rece- receiving such a high number of young and intelligent people which is known as human capital flight or a brain drain. In August of 1958 the Communist Party of the Soviet Union's director on relations with communist workers communist and workers parties of socialist countries god god that's a title yeah. reported up to 50% uh, reported up to a 50% increase in refugees amongst East Germans fleeing from fleeing west from the intelligentsia community. This report continued by saying, despite the GDR's claims that these people were fleeing due to economic reasons, these refugees went on record that they were fleeing for ideological and political reasons. They were smart. They saw what was happening. In 1952, East Germany began setting up barbed wire along the inner border to prevent people from crossing over, officially closing it. But West Berlin was still easily accessible and used as a loophole to get out. As a result, Berlin saw huge influx of people using the city to easily escape west without having to cross checkpoints or over barbed wire, which changed, obviously, but 1955, the Soviets relinquished their control of East Berlin to the GDR government.
1: Relinquished? Quote unquote. on
0: quote? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the GDR further restricted travel to West Berlin by passing a law requiring passports for travel there. However, this did little to stop travel as there was a subway access between East and West Berlin. Turns out splitting a city in half isn't that easy. <laughs> there was a lack of a physical barrier preventing people from crossing anywhere. Again, shocking. Turns out, real difficult to split a city in half. It also had the unintended consequence of actually raising the number of persons leaving through Berlin by 30%. So by now, it was becoming clear that GDR would need to enact serious measures to prevent further exodus. Yeah. <laughs> it was not, not good for them. It's not going well.
1: Yeah, things are bad. <laughs> Berlin. Could you I just it's like one of those things where it's like just imagine living in Berlin at be the time. It'd be so
0: freaking confusing.
1: Like it, I I in even just like in West Berlin, how fucking
0: It'd be so confi- well, West Berlin would be freakier to live in just because of the like the anxiety of the fact that you're in this small pocket of western in like East Germany. Yeah, I mean, West...
1: But like it would, it'd be so
0: confusing. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, we'll t- I'll talk more about the divide later. But yeah, it's.
0: It actually like makes me think of. Um, did you watch like the reboot or like the remake of the movie The Man from U.N.C.L.E.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I kind of take it takes place during this period. It's like, which I always thought was really interesting in that movie because it, not a lot is actually really set in. If you think about it, like pop culture wise, there actually is like not a ton that's set kind of in like. Berlin around the time. Of like yeah,
1: the only one I can think of at the top of my head is Bridget Spies. Yeah. And just so and that's people... that's different
0: like, because it's about a specific like historical
1: event. Yeah, and just so people know we're not talking about the Bridges Spies because unfortunately it's actually not as interesting <laughs> as people yeah. think.
0: I enjoyed it, but it no, wasn't a, as... No, the movie's good. It's just oh, that
1: the yeah. actual subject on it was oh, not yeah, 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 anywhere no. near as exciting. No. Not at yeah. all. Yeah, as you can tell by now, escalate, like things were getting pretty tense and the gdr it's been was, awkward. yeah gdr was getting pissed that people were leaving but basically it's like you you, you move into the western zone they're gonna they accepted you as a, as a as a citizen because it's like well they're german i mean it's the same thing when north korean defectors they're immediately given south korean citizenship Once they make it over, Um, I mean, they still have to do a lot of them
0: have family in South. Yeah,
1: and they do have to do rehabilitation, but they become South Korean citizens instantly. It was the same in East and Western, like Easterners heading to West. But the real place where escalations actually boiled over was in Vienna.
0: Of all places. Yeah,
1: at the Vienna Summit on June fourth, nineteen sixty one. And the summit was actually a meeting between John F. Kennedy Alboa. I don't know why I did that, but our boy, John F. Kennedy, and uh, Nikita Khrushchev.
0: Just one of his friends.
1: Yeah. So earlier in February 1961, Kennedy had actually messaged Khrushchev directly expressing hope the two could meet in person, quote for an informal exchange of views end quote." This was done despite the advice of Kennedy's advisors who did not believe it was a good idea to directly message Khrushchev or to meet with Khrushchev. However, this did not deter the young boy from Boston. During the meeting, much of their time together was actually spent discussing the status of Berlin. Khrushchev relayed his belief a united Germany would once again lead to world war, arguing Germany had started World War II soon after World War I, and it had not been long enough since World War II had ended. He believed Germany was still a significant threat due to its membership in NATO. Because, yeah, West Germany was part of NATO. (laughs) Kennedy declared American forces were occupying West Berlin, quote, by contractual rights, end quote. He argued the withdrawal of American troops would destroy confidence to American commitments to its allies, Furthermore, he pointed out Berlin's strategic significance, which is probably the real reason why he wanted to stay. The failure for either side to come to an agreement led to the beginning of what is known as the Berlin Crisis. On the night of August 11th, Khrushchev granted East German government a approval to cease the mass emigration by permanently closing the border to the west. The following day, First Secretary Walter Ulbricht signed the order to begin construction of the Berlin Wall. (laughs) At midnight August 13th, a mix of East German army, police, and citizen volunteers worked to lie barbed wire and erect walls of concrete blocks along the surrounding of West Berlin. They also dug up the roads on the border to make vehicle access next to impossible. In response, Kennedy ordered the mobilization of 148,000 guardsmen and reservists to report to active duty. By October, members of the Air National Guard were deployed to West Berlin, along with 216 tactical fighter aircraft flown over to Europe in what is known as Operation Stair Step, which remains the largest jet deployment in the Air Guard's history to this day. The tension reached its peak on October 22, 1961. U.S. Chief of Mission in West Berlin, E. Allen Leitner, was traveling to East Berlin to attend the theater when he was stopped and denied entry at Checkpoint Charlie. It was agreed at the post conference that in 1945, all Allied forces would be allowed to freely access all other sectors within Berlin. And this was obviously a clear violation of this agreement. Angry American officers even planned to order troops to to begin dismantling the barbed wire and other barricades with bulldozers, but the plan was quashed by Brigadier General Frederick O'Hadel. After a series of incidents, General Lucius Clay, the man who was assigned by Washington to assess the situation, ordered several M-48 Patton tanks to Checkpoint Charlie to be positioned 75 meters away from from and facing the border. In retaliation, Khrushchev sent a number of T-55s to the scene where the two columns faced each other down. This was a, known as today as the standoff at Checkpoint Charlie and was the height of the Berlin crisis. This was one of the closest times we ca- came to World War III. Not the last time and not the first time, but one of, still one of the closest.
0: I've been to Checkpoint Charlie.
1: Yeah, they still have it up. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. The problem is Clay had actually sent the tanks there without approval from Washington and U.S. officials panicked, understandably. They quickly admonished Clay, saying things needed approval from Washington first and Berlin was not worth escalating to a war with the Soviets over. Acting quickly, Kennedy opened a back channel to Khrushchev where both men began to negotiate and settled the misunderstanding. Sixteen hours after the standoff began, a T-55 left the scene followed by an M-48, this continued back and forth until all the tanks were removed from checkpoint charlie as a result of his actions clay was purposely removed from frontline work although he was still a highly regarded person in the military he wasn't in the military at that time but he was still in the military community but basically they weren't going to let him do anything official ever again i don't blame him <laughs> The Berlin Wall was con- construction continued, it remained mostly barbed wire and concrete blocks for the rest of 1961, upgrades to the wire fence were installed between 1962 and 1965, an improved concrete wall was constructed between 65 and 75, and finally what was named the Grenzmauer 75 or the border wall 75 was completed between 1975 and 1989. Or, the official name given to the wall was the Anti Fascist Schutzwall or the Anti Fascist Protection Rampart. It was nicknamed the Wall of Shame by West Berlin Mayor and later Chancellor of West Germany, Willy Brandt. You gotta wonder who was protecting this. So, they were a group known as the Grenztruppen and they were the border troops of the GDR. Evil humans. Huh? Evil humans. They were pretty bad. They were established on December 1st 1946 as the Policy to protect the East German side of the inner border and the East-West Berlin border. It was created to curb the mass emigration and defection to the West. It was later upgraded as a branch of the National People's Army between 19, uh, from 1961 until 1971 when it became a branch of the Ministry of National Defense. It started off with only 3,000 troops from the Grenzpolizei, who were initially assigned to protect the border. And by 1948, the number had and risen to 10,000 personnel, then to 18,000 two years later. And needless to say, the recruitment criteria was strict. And here's not all of them, there's a lot, but here's some of the more important ones. Persons must be between 19 and 26. They could not reside in East Berlin or near any of the other border areas, they could not have friends or family residing within West Germany, must be in line with politics of East Germany, those who had shown even an ounce of dissidence or had relatives who did would not be considered. Furthermore, while not at automatic disqualifications, religious persons were further vetted and they were seen with distrust, as a communist state does training was also rigorous recruits went through the same basic training as a regular army although they additionally trained in more patrol search observance dog handling inspection and mine laying over half the training was indoctrination in order to weed out hesitant shooters that becomes important later all recruits were required to hit a mo- two moving targets at 200 meters with only four rounds they were equipped with soviet supplied weapons the sidearm most notable sidearm was the makarov pistol their main weapon was the mpik which is a variant of the ak-47 and they also used the imgk and imgd light machine guns which were based on the soviet rpk and rpd and some outposts were even given rpgs lovely yeah the Grenz policy reorganized under the Grenz Truppen and became part of the army in 1961 with the beginning of the construction of the Berlin Wall. Shifts usually lasted eight hours, and each soldier was assigned to a new station every day. They were heavily infiltrated by the Stasi, which Lindsay will get into later, but they are the Ministry for State Security, and it was in order for them to keep an eye out for guards suspected of attempting to escape or helping others to escape. The Grenztruppen were briefly under the charge of the Stasi for only a single year before they were moved on to the Ministry of National Defense. Contact with West German customs officers was strictly forget- forbidden, however this did not stop East and West guards from speaking with each other, exchanging insignia, in some cases newspaper, treats, etc. The main talking points were what life was like on the other side of each respective border. By far the most known and talked about aspect of the Grunstruppen is their shoot-to-kill policy. All soldiers were authorized to shoot those attempting to flee west on sight and without orders. This is an actual quote from the order. Quote, Do not hesitate to use your firearm, not even when the border is breached in the company of women and children, which is a tactic that traitors have often used. End quote. Lovely. Yeah. An official report counted a total of 1065 people were killed by the Grenztruppen. Around 250 of those were killed on the Berlin Wall, although estimates vary. For this reason, many former guards and officers were tried post-reunification for various different crimes. No shit. But yeah, the Stasi were
0: equally as shit. Worse worse, really lots of ways ultimately life in east germany was really strongly influenced by communist thought obviously once kind of the initial sort of turmoil of communism really set in there was like a you know the usual bland horrible life that existed in the east (laughs) i'm not going to really talk too much about specifically like everyday life in east germany it was a lot like everyday life in every other communist country in eastern europe rations general you know lack of choice not a lot of you know shortages, etc. the general same type of bullshit everywhere else. Ultimately, the common thread is that it was equally as oppressive as everywhere else as well. The best way to describe the culture of the GDR is as heavily censored. And that censorship, well, yeah, existed because the GDR was, you know, not exactly democratic. (laughs) The German Democratic Republic was really not terribly democratic.
1: Usually, I've made this joke before, but if it has the word democratic... It's not really. Chances are it's not
0: democratic. No. So the main arm of the government to achieve, or that the government used to achieve this censorship was the state security service or the Stasi, as they were unaffectionately known. The Stasi are widely regarded, actually, as one of the most effective and repressive intelligence secret police agencies to have ever existed to this day, still considered the worst. The best at what they did, but the worst, you know, in general. They were headquartered in East Berlin with an expansive complex in Berlin-Lichtenberg, and smaller facilities throughout the city. Their model was Schild und Schwert der Partei. Der it's so not that easy. Referring to <laughs> the so- Socialist Unity Party of Germany, or the SUD. This echoed at a theme of their Soviet counterparts, the KGB, with respect to its own ruling party, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, or CPSU. Erich Mielke was the Stasi's longest serving chief and was in power for a brutal 32 of the GDR's 40 years of existence. Stasi was founded on the 8th of February, 1950, and Wilhelm Zeisser was the first Minister of State Security of the GDR with Milka as his deputy. Although Milke Stasi superficially uh, superficially granted independence in 1957, until 1990, the KGB continued to maintain liaison officers in all eight main Stasi directorates, each with his own office inside the Berlin compound and in each of the 15 Stasi district headquarters around East Germany. So, the Stasi were really heavily influenced by the KGB, even though they were technically independent, which is true of all of East Germany, which was technically independent, but (laughs) like, nah, not really. Collaboration between the KGB and the Stasi was so close that the KGB actually invited the Stasi to establish operational bases in Moscow and Leningrad to monitor visiting tourists from the GDR. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty special. In 1978, Milka formally granted the KGB officers in East Germany the same rights and powers that they enjoyed in the Soviet Union, which is a bad idea. I think we can all objectively agree. Not <laughs> good. Don't do that. Anyway, between 1950 and 1989, the Stasi employed a total of 274,000 people in an effort to root out the, cl- the class of enemy. It's, you know, gotta use all the people. <laughs> in 1989, the Stasi employed 91,015 people full-time, including 2,000 fully employed unofficial collaborators, 13,073 soldiers, and 2,232 officers of the GDR Army, along with 173,081 unofficial informants inside the GDR, and 1,553 informants in West Germany. Officers were recruited from conscripts who had been honorably discharged from their 18 months of mandatory military service, had been members of the SED, had a high level of participation in the party's youth wing, and had been Stasi informers during their time in the military. So if you were a snitch... You rose to the top. They had to be recommended by their military unit political officer, which were, for those of you who aren't sure what a political officer is, uh, is really common in oppressive, generally, communist governments. They have a party member who is basically there to make sure that no one is being a non-communist. They're basically like the unit snitch.
1: these, These were the guys... That were infiltrating the Grunstruppen, and it wasn't a secret either. no. People no. knew who they you, were. You all
0: know who they are. It was always obvious who they were, and if you watch like old-timey, well, not really that old-timey, but if you watch Cold War submarine movies like Hunt for Red October, etc., you'll see who the political officer is. They point him out. Yeah. So they also had to be recommended by, their mili- yeah, by the military unit political officer and Stasi agents, the local chiefs of the district, and the police district in which they were a permanent resident. There was extensive testing to determine their political reliability and their intellectual capacity to be an officer. However, if the candidate was a university graduate, they skipped that part. They skipped all the testing because they were apparently smart enough already. <laughs> but after that, there was the two-year officer training program at the Stasi College in Potsdam. So it took a lot to be in the Stasi, which, I mean, makes sense, actually, when you consider that what they're actually most famous for is their per- own personal brand of psychological harassment, which is called uh, Zersetzung. So the word is difficult to capture because it literally translates to biodegradation. <laughs> yeah. But German historian Hubertus Naba suggests that the literal translation actually is closer to the case than we think. Like, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it actually properly captures the essence of what this is. So the goal of Zersetsung, secretly, but to destroy the self-confidence of people by damaging their reputations, usually by organizing some kind of failure of work, and by destroying their personal, ra- personal relationships. So basically they wanted to break people down. So this is why the word di- biodegradation kind of fits, because they were literally intending to break you down. And they did this quietly and subtly in ways that you would never even know. So this technique actually made them possibly one of the most unique dictatorships ever, because most di- dictatorships essentially just try and arrest everyone and send them to someplace cold. We see you, Russia. But <laughs> East Germany really just simply par- preferred to paralyze them, So why lock everyone up when you can just control the population instead? So like I said, this is some 1984 type bullshit. It wasn't terribly difficult for the Stasi to do this either because they had access to an enormous amount of personal information on its citizens and also all of the institutions in the country. So it was pretty easy. By 1970, they had decided that overt persecution, so jailing people and sending them into cold places, (laughs) was not really that great. So they decided that overt persecution like torture and arrest it was ult- ultimately just too crude and obvious people know what you're doing it they can see you you know drive up in your black van they know right and so they ultimately figured out that psychological harassment was much harder to recognize for what it was and so their victims and supporters were less lo- likely less likely to be provoked into active resistance because they wouldn't even know that it was happening essentially this tactic was designed to create a misdirection of sorts the article is kind of the language about this is weird because it's hard to describe Essentially, it was to try and sort of switch off perceived enemies so they would ideally lose their will to continue unwanted activities. So they just wanted to break you down to the point where you essentially lost your will to even try. Their tactics generally involved ultimately just messing with their targets, private or family life, usually both, and work life as well. Often they would break into a victim's home and subtly manipulate the contents, gaslighting them. They would move furniture, alter the timing of an alarm, remove pictures from walls, or even switch out a variety of tea with a different one. They would damage property, sabotage cars, give purposely incorrect medical treatment, engage in smear campaigns such as falsifying, compromising photos and sending them to the victim's family, denunciation, provocation, wiretapping, sending mysterious phone calls or unnecessary deliveries to targets. Uh, Once they actually sent a vibrator to a target's wife, just appeared out of nowhere. So usually the victims actually had no idea that the Stasi were responsible, so these things were just happening and eventually it makes people feel like they're going crazy. So many just thought they were losing their minds A lot of people had mental breakdowns. Some people committed suicide. So that was actually, like, the real cruelty of the Stasi because no one knew who was doing it, what was, like, it was just you thought you were losing your mind. And so this was way more effective than ultimately jailing everybody, right? And the Stasi were everywhere. They literally were everywhere. I mean, like I said above, there was a ton of them. There weren't that many people in East Germany. And to have that many just, like, employees alone like 275,000 employees. And then even by the end of the end of the GDR there was like an estimated like a couple million people who were ultimately like revealed as having tar- been targets or informants or involved in with the Stasi at some point. So they were literally everywhere and so you couldn't escape them. And so there was this really oppressive feeling of paranoia, much more than even in the Soviet Union because well, it's a little more spread out. <laughs> but there was just fewer of the KGB, I think. But as terrible as the KGB were, ultimately there's a lot of places in Russia where they just didn't really reach either, right? Whereas in East Germany, the Stasiad, it's a smaller place. They have a lot more control. And uh, they also just use this this psychological element. And what actually was the most successful thing about it was the subtlety. Not just because people didn't realize it was happening, but it also meant that there was plausible deniability, which is everyone's favorite thing. So... (laughs) The GDR at the time was trying to improve its international standing. They didn't really want to be seen as the people who just brutally tortured and arrested people and threw them into jail. So they decided that this was a better tactic for pressuring their people because no one would even know. So like I said, not the people who were being tortured <laughs> wouldn't even know that they were being psychologically tortured. But the people who were trying to better relationships and everything with the GDR, like their supporters, also would never know that this was happening. So... It was great plausible deniability for the, the government. And this was really important because they were trying to yeah, improve their international standing. And at the time, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt had a, a policy of Ostpolitik, which is East politics, which basically is he was trying to improve relations between the East and the West. And so the East didn't want to appear to be brutally oppressing their citizens, even though they were. Yeah. So. The one
1: with the dildo is, confuses me.
0: It's kind of funny, but, like, also, what the fuck? And, well, I think, and I think that's the point. It's not necessarily to, like, I think they were trying to create shame. I mean, like, so it's a pretty common thing that women are meant to feel shame about masturbation. So, like, if a sex toy just arrives and you didn't order that, it's going to be an interesting conversation you're going to have to have with your husband, right? Like, and that's the point. Were they
1: sending a message, to and that message would either be, you're fucked. No, they're not get, trying to send a message fucked. at all. Or go fuck yourself. This is the
0: thing. <laughs> they're not trying to send a message. I know. I'm,
1: it's just, but i But that was my initial thought. Oh, yes. Is like, no, what kind not, of message? They're not they're trying, trying to send, to send. any
0: message. They're just trying to create misdirection and make you be like, where did this come from? What the hell is happening? Who would have sent this? It's just to create paranoia and create chaos. That's all they wanted to do. Well, it's also
1: funny that they would like use sexual shame.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Uh, towards women when they were actively like East Germany. One of the many things that they would openly praise and, like, um, not praise, but uh, encourage was vacationing in nudist colonies.
0: Yeah. bit different, though. Well, and I mean, I don't know that they were trying to use, like, sexual shame necessarily. I think they were just ultimately trying to create chaos. Like, I don't know the okay. exact motivations, but, like, I I just, I, the ultimate idea of Zetsun was just to create sort of, like, chaos and eventually, like, over time... Like, the thing is, is that they spent an incredible amount of time on this. It's not like, you know, one day, it's not like all this is happening rapid fire. It's kind of, like, slowly over the course of years. And slowly it's like, you know, if you kept coming home and, like, you know, things just were slightly different than the way you left them constantly, you'd kind of be, like, on the edge of, like, what is going on? What is happening? And that over time leads to, like, great mental distress and it, like, breaks you down. And that was the point, was Mm -hmm. that they're just trying to create this kind of, kind of chaos in your mind like not physical actual chaos in the streets but like a chaos in your brain of like what's going on why is why is my alarm going off differently today like why is my couch on the other side of the room when it was over here before like Mm. who was here yeah it's it's just like this they're just trying to create this fear of like someone's always there someone's always watching
1: i swear this is a scene in amelie as well yeah like, essentially,
0: this is just gaslighting. Like Zetsung is essentially just gaslighting. Yeah. they're just they're just gaslighting people, and gaslighting is a really effective way to control people.
1: You know, definitely. But since I brought it up, uh, yeah, nude, nudist uh, vacation spots were apparently a big thing in East Germany.
0: Yeah, well, they were a big thing in Germany before West and East was a thing. I well, apparent,
1: so. but apparently in East Germany especially not so much in the West. Yeah, but. Funny fact, Angela Merkel grew up in East Germany yeah. <laughs> during this time. She w- was born in West Germany. In their it's family. not really
0: shocking. That's a big part of her bio.
1: Yeah, but it's like, I mean, I, I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, no,
0: she's like talked about it like openly okay. in her like campaigns and stuff.
1: Okay, but yeah, th- yeah what's interesting is I, did, I didn't know this specific aspect of it, but she was born in West Germany and her family immigrated to the East. Yeah. So they did the opposite of what a lot of other people were doing.
0: Yeah, I think it was because of her dad's work.
1: Probably. Um, But
0: she, no, she talks really openly about being from East Germany, and, like, part of that is because, we'll talk about it a little more after, but, like, culturally, there's, like, uh, the, the, the separation of Western and East Germany, like, really fucked, like, the culture up in Germany bad, and it's still a thing. There's still a pretty, like, strong divide between East and West Germany, and so, like, her being from the East and kind of, like, Making a point of saying that, but she like was trying to actually bridge that gap was a big part of her, her uh, her leadership like goals. So no, she talked about that like pretty pretty openly, because she and that's actually why like because she speaks Russian, right? Like that's the other thing is that like she speaks Russian because she grew up in East Germany. Yeah. So that's a big part of her. So one of the most famous, I guess, moments came in in uh, June of 1963 with John F. Kennedy coming to coming to West Berlin. <laughs> Ugh, Johnny Boy. <coughs> wicked smart. <laughs> oh, God. Too many impressions. It's not good. Oh, anyway. Glad. Uh, we should stop before this <laughs> is... <laughs> okay. Anyways, John F. Kennedy, we should probably so show some reverence for the president. Probably. probably. <laughs> stop just mocking his accent. But anyways, um, he gave a speech in ni- June on June 26, 1963, which is ultimately considered one of the most famous speeches of the cold war and uh also probably one of the most famous anti-communist speeches in general and um with this speech his goal was to undermine or sorry to underline not undermine underline u.s support for west berlin after soviet occupied east berlin put up a wall basically you know he wanted to show them that he cared because he did the speech was aimed as much at the soviets as it was at the berliners who were actually there to watch the speech most of them yeah, he was, he was trying to send a message, like his hidden being there is a symbol. I mean, the president wields mostly symbolic power more than anything else in their own government, so the symbol of a U.S. president being somewhere really sticks. And so the speech was a, a large foreign policy statement for the U.S. in the wake of the wall being constructed. So it also did provide a morale booster for the West Germans, as they lived in constant anxiety of an East German occupation, because East Berlin is ultimately east, deep inside East German territory, so West Berlin felt a lot of anxiety so Kennedy came here and gave a speech, and the speech I'm talking about is the famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech, which, let me get this out of the way right now. The urban legend is that Ich bin ein Berliner means I am a donut, and it's not the case. It does mean I am a Berliner.
1: It does make me sad that not true. It's just that, that
0: true. most actual Germans wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a, like a literal translation. It's not like actual good German. It's just very literal. But yeah, the urban legend is not true. So I'm just going to clear that up right now. The famous Ich bin Einbrunner speech though is actually derived in part from a similar speech that Kennedy gave a year before in New Orleans. And in his speech he used really similar wording including the phrase civis romanus sum.
1: 2,000 years ago, the
0: proudest boast was to say, I am a citizen of Rome. Today I believe in 1962, the proudest boast is
1: to say, I am a citizen of the United States.
0: But the phrases, I am a Berliner, and I am proud to be in Berlin, were typed already a week before the speech even was, like, given. So people knew, he knew that he was basically going to reuse this speech and (laughs) had, like, the words, the German words he wanted to say were already written out. And in practice sessions before his trip, Kennedy had to run through a number of sentences and paragraphs to recite in German, and he was helped by Margaret Plischke, who was a translator for the U.S. State Department, Ted Sorensen, who was Kennedy's speechwriter and counsel, as well as Robert Lochner, who was an interpreter and had grown up in Berlin. But it became pretty qu- clear pretty quickly that Boston's Finest did not have a knack for languages, and he was likely to embarrass himself if he had to say very much in German. <laughs> so they decided to ax a lot of the German-speaking parts. So they there's some differing accounts on the origin of the phrase Ich bin ein Berliner, but Lochner claimed in his memoirs that JFK asked for a translation of I am a Berliner, and so Lochner literally translated it, and then they practiced that phrase in the mayor of East West Berlin's office before he went out there and spoke. So on the day Kennedy goes out, uh, there's a long table set up on the steps of the Rathaus Schinneberg, which is the city hall, essentially, of West Berlin. And at this table were U.S. and German dignitaries, including Secretary of State Dean Rusk, U.S. Minister of Germany, Lucius D. Clay. German, German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, Mayor of West Berlin, Willy, Willy Brandt, and Otto Be- Beck, the President of the House of Representatives of Berlin, which actually has a long German name that I skipped. <laughs> <In time. laughs> Doing myself a favor. The crowd was an estimated 450,000 people, with Beck opening things up by speaking about the recent developments in Berlin, primarily the wall, kind of on everyone's mind. Konrad Adenauer spoke briefly and then introduced the President. Kennedy was accompanied by Heinz Weber of the Berlin Mission, with Weber translating the speech to the audience. So it was actually kind of a surprise. Everyone expected Lochner to be out there with him, but it was not. It was this guy. Besides the transcript, uh, Kennedy had cue cards on which he himself had written the frenetic spelling of ein Berliner, and he surprised everybody by completely disregarding the speech and just decided to improvise. He went for it, which did not make his advisors happy at all, because the speech definitely took a turn
1: made the German people happy though.
0: Sure did. Freedom has many difficulties and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. Real lasting
1: peace in Europe can never be assured as long as one German out of four is denied the elementary
0: right of free men, and that is to make a free choice. 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was, Kiwis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is, Ich bin ein Beeliner. The speech went a little bit off the rails, but uh, <laughs> it culminated with the second use of this in the second use of Ich bin ein Berliner in the speech uh, when he said, Today in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. And so it kind of like, he really went for broke when he went the second time because he knew how much it excited people, and I guess when he finished, he was just like the happiest person on the planet. So Kennedy's national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, what a, what a weird name. Who names their kid McGeorge? I would like to know. McGeorge Bundy's parents are apparently terrible humans. Bob
1: and McGeorge?
0: Yeah. Like, what?
1: Large fries. Anyway.
0: Lucky, lucky for him, McDonald's didn't really. Well, it existed, but it wasn't really a thing yet. Oh, what a name. Anyways, so McGeorge Bundy thought the speech had gone a little too far because Kennedy really went for it. He really like trashed the Soviets and like he, he was the speech was really provocative. And so Bundy forced them to revise the next speech, which was scheduled at the Freie Universität Berlin later the day. So it would have a bit of a softer stance, which was a bit more conciliatory towards the Soviets. They didn't want to completely just like walk in and punch them in the mouth, <laughs> which Kennedy basically did. The immediate response from the West German population was positive. The Soviet authorities, we're not loving it, though, <laughs> shockingly. Uh, and they especially did not like the combative nach Berlin-Kommen, which let them come to Berlin. Soviets, not really a fan of that. So only two weeks prior, Kennedy had spoken in a more conciliatory tone, speaking of improving relations with the Soviets. So it's kind of like this speech was, it stood out just because of the fact it was so, such a stark comparison to his previous speech where he was like, well, we'll try and be nice with the Soviets. And then he just went for broken Berlin because he got swept up in the moment, I guess. I don't know. But anyways, Nikita Khrushchev, as he often did, decided to troll the president by remarking that, quote, one would think the speeches were made by two different presidents because, you know, <laughs> Khrushchev was the ultimate troll. Like, yeah. he really did. He, like, he was he was good for a, a quip.
1: In our episodes, it goes Tito, then Khrushchev. Yeah. And then probably Huey Long.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for, like, dictators that we sort of respect in a weird way. No, I mean
1: in terms of trolling. Oh,
0: trolling level. Yeah, troll levels. Trolling level. Dictator troll level.
1: We should probably have an
0: official list for social media of, like, our dictator troll (laughs) levels. Anyways, yeah, Khrushchev. He was a troll. Didn't really love it. The speech, I mean, uh, uh, I don't know what the speech ultimately really did Uh, at the time other than just provoke the Soviets. (laughs) But uh, ultimately, it just went on to influence another really famous Berlin wall speech which we'll talk about a little bit later
1: yeah quite a bit later but <gasps> it was a very important moment yeah I mean like yeah I'll, like I said I'll post the I'll post the clip yeah it was a very like bold move especially but it was very as you'll see in the clip it's very it, like they go nuts the German people go nuts and it's uh, it was a bit it was quite a morale boost for them would you say
0: Yeah it was that was I think like the main takeaway from the speech itself for the Germans anyways like and that that was a thing is that like this speech really was like a foreign policy speech for the US and so like the so the Germans like I feel like ultimately probably didn't care that much about the content in some ways well they cared obviously but Kennedy really like deciding to sort of, Take the speech the way he did ended up really providing a big morale boost for for West German citizens. They felt pretty isolated, and I mean, how would you fucking feel if a wall got put up in your yeah, city? Also,
1: very Kennedy-esque to oh, totally go off the cuff.
0: I mean, he's very like he's very charismatic. I mean, that's the thing is that Johnny Kennedy was gonna make you ha- make you feel good. He's a good speaker, right? Yeah. Like they
1: make you feel good in the audience and in bed. Well. I, it's, it's definitely not a secret at was this point. Was that confirmed? Point. I don't know. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. Despite the wall and despite, you know, everything in the way that did not deter people from escaping. And in fact, between 1961 and 1988, there were roughly 40,100 direct escapes from East Germany. There was a lot more, but these were actual direct escapes, like actually, you know... <laughs> jumping over the fence or tricking border guards, not like seeking asylum or using legal methods to get out, because, yeah, there were legal methods to get out. They were difficult, but there are ways you could get out and emigrate yeah. legally. Probably the most famous escape was done by a man named Conrad Schumann, who was at the time 19. He was a guns stationed in Berlin during the Wall's construction. On August 15, 1961, Schumann was on duty at the intersection of Ruppiner Strauss and Bernauer Strauss. He was noticed by several West Germans to be eyeing the other side, and they began to encourage him to come over. Soon, a West Berlin police car pulled up across from him and waited. Seeing his opportunity, Schumann left over the barbed wire, dropped his gun, and leapt into the waiting car and was driven away. The photograph that you see in the collage I made for the preview of this, that's Conrad Schumann jumping over the wall, and it is considered the most famous picture of the Berlin Wall, or at least the escapes. After this incident, old guards were assigned in Paris with orders to shoot the other should either attempt to escape. Schumann later moved to Bavaria, married, and had a son. Sadly, he took his own life in 1998 after suffering years from depression, which is very sad. But the good news is he got to see the wall come down and Germany reunited before his passing. So several people, this is, okay, this is is my favorite of all of them. Several people found an uncanny resemblance between diplomatic passports and the Munich Playboy Club membership cards. Shockingly, people were able to simply cross by flashing these cards at the Grenz Troopers. Amazing. Love it. In
0: 1963,
1: former East German resident Joachim Neumann, along with several fellow West German citizens, constructed a tunnel beneath an abandoned bakery in order to free loved ones they were forced to leave behind or were separated from when the wall went up. On the night between October 3rd and 4th, 57 people escaped to the west through the tunnel, which became known as Tunnel 57. The group was discovered by an East German patrol, and in a panic, one of the escapees fired on the on guard Egon Schultz, wounding him. The other guards opened fire but accidentally struck and killed Schultz instead, who was in the way. He was 21. The escapees managed to get to safety. This was the largest number of people who escaped to the west in a single event and to this day schultz continues to be remembered and somewhat martyrized for the event simply because he was a man killed doing his job by friendly fire yeah. horst klein used a tight rope to walk over the wall albeit he fell and broke both his arms luckily landing on the west Berlin side <laughs> and he survived <laughs> I mean, you hear people tightroping between the Twin towers, yep. across Niagara Falls, but across the Berlin Wall, that's pretty, dicey. that's pretty dicey and freaking genius.:
0: Well, except that you're like pretty susceptible to gunfire. Yeah.
1: Nobody noticed him until he fell.
0: Fair enough. I so
1: guess. someone wasn't doing their job. Heinz Mechsener and his girlfriend, Margaret Thoreau, escaped when they bought a low-riding convertible, removed the windshield, and drove together along with Thoreau's mother through a checkpoint and ducking under the barrier to checkpoint Charlie. Literally, they just sped towards the Grand who jumped out of the way. He ducked under yeah. the barrier and made it across. Because once they're across, yeah. the, the shoot-to-kill policy doesn't count. Yeah. Hans-Peter yeah. Steliak. And Gunther Wetzel flew over the wall in a hot air balloon with their families. And apparently they got, they got the idea after watching a GDR documentary about hot air balloons. <laughs> <laughs> However, those were the fun ones. And now I'm about to talk about one that is not fun whatsoever. On August 17th, 1962, 18-year-old Peter Fischter and friend Helmut Kolbiek jumped from a window into the death strip, then ran across towards the west. As they were climbing over the wall into West Berlin, a Grenz, Grenz troopers opened fire, striking feschter in the pelvic. Kilbrecht made it over, but feschter fell back into the strip where he lay bleeding. Hundreds of onlookers helplessly watched and could do nothing to save him. West German police even threw bandages, but they landed too far out of reach for him to get. An hour after being shot, Fester finally bled to death. Only then did the guns troopers step in and remove the body to the shouts of West Germans demonstrating in the outrage, calling them murderers. It was later revealed American soldiers were told not to intervene despite their requests to do so, and even though they, were, they probably could have. And also, they experts found that Fester's wounds were actually fatal and he would not have survived regardless of what had happened which is very sad i want to say he was the youngest to be killed at the wall but i don't think he was these are just some of the ones i gathered together because well most of them like the like two of them are absolutely iconic and the rest are hilariously genius there are a lot of other ex like people hiding in refrigerated trucks people hiding in hollowed out cows, Mm -hmm. uh, and sacks, like meat sacks and stuff like that. They're all whole, whole bunch, like a plethora of brilliant ideas. Some
0: like rooftops were connected. So like people would kind of like find ways to sort of scale, like the sides of buildings to try and Mm -hmm. get across and yeah. Which
1: wasn't easy. (laughs)
0: No,
1: I mean, there, there are also landmines. In West Berlin, like within the city limits kind of deal. So it was very dicey regardless. It's
0: a pretty dangerous proposition.
1: Also, it should be mentioned a lot of... There were quite a few Grenz troopers who were killed by people escaping to the east. Which I don't think it was... Yeah, to the west, I mean. I don't think it was necessarily the fault of these individual soldiers, but definitely the fault of that kind of their reputation, which in a lot of ways is not unfounded some of these people like before like during the tunnel it was just people who panicked like saw a guard and panicked and reacted and in a lot of ways it was people they just shot the guards in order to get by by, yeah also a lot of guns troopers ended up killing each other at times in order to escape so that was another thing but again lots of stuff to go on these are just my favorites especially the playboy card one which Was an amazing thing to learn. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. During the 80s, I guess things started to really change.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the like culmination of all of this stuff really was just like too much, right? People really, I mean, no one liked the wall from the beginning. It's not like anyone was ever really in favor of it, like people on the ground, that is. Yeah. Obviously, politicians were, but you know, it's not like it was ever a popular thing. But Ronald Reagan was really a, fa- well, he's famously, like, an anti-communist crusader. His whole presidency was very essentially spent on trying to get rid of communism. <laughs> so yeah. he was no fan of the communists. And he gave, I guess, what's considered the other most famous Berlin Wall speech. There's a lot of Berlin Wall speeches, but they are not that many, but I guess. But he uh, gave one of the most famous speeches, but in it's called the Berlin Wall speech, But it's really more famously known as the Tear Down This Wall speech. And it was delivered by Reagan in West Berlin on June 12, 1987. But the speech was not the first time Reagan had addressed the issue of the Berlin Wall, obviously. Being the anti-communist crusader he was, he obviously really had a problem with the wall. So in a visit to West Berlin in 1982, he said, you know, I'd like to ask Soviet leaders one question. Why is the wall there? In 1986, 25 years after the construction of the wall, Reagan responded to a question asking when he thought the wall could be removed by saying, quote, I call upon those responsible to dismantle it today, end quote. So not really the most subtle. No, it's pretty obvious what he wanted. The day before Reagan's 1987 visit, 50,000 people had demonstrated against the presence of the U.S. president in Berlin. So the thing that's interesting about his speech is that like while he was there to talk you know, to speak against the wall and to speak against communism. People in West Berlin weren't super stoked about him being there.
1: Yeah, it was mostly him. It was because of, like, h- him, him as a person.
0: Yeah, Reagan wasn't really that popular outside of the U.S., to be honest. <laughs> um, he, and even then, I guess he only had, I mean, he had. He was popular for, popular in the United States, but really outside of the U.S., he wasn't that popular. So, yeah, 50,000 people demonstrated his presence So during the visit, wide swaths of Berlin were actually closed off to prevent further anti-Reagan protests, so the city was, like, on lockdown for him to be there. And obviously the speech drew some controversy within Reagan's own administration. Uh, Several senior staffers and aides advised against, using the phrase, tear down this wall, saying anything that might cause further east-west tensions or potential embarrassment to Gorbachev, who Reagan had built a good relationship with, should be omitted. Gorbachev was really trying... To, to steer the the, shi- the sinking ship that was the Soviet Union away yeah. from...
1: I mean, by this point, uh, Perestroika and Glasnost... ...were in place.
0: Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah they were in, in beginning to be in place anyways, if they weren't fully in place. And so Reagan had always had found a sympathetic ear in Gorbachev. They'd really wanted to work together, and so they built this relationship, and a lot of advisors were pretty terrified that Reagan was going to just blow all that up. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah... So American officials in West Germany and presidential speech writers, including Peter Robinson, Robinson, yeah, they thought otherwise, though. They were in favor of this remaining in the speech. They wanted to set a tone. Robinson and chief speech writer Anthony Dillon give contradicting accounts of the line's origins. And actually, it's funny, because their disagreement about the line's origins uh, led to a really a friendly exchange of letters between the two of them about their different accounts, and the Wall Street Journal actually published them. So mm. it's kind of interesting, but... If I find
1: those, I'll post those for anyone. Yeah, interested. I meant to
0: go look at them, except um, I don't have internet and in my address was location. <laughs> 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 Anyways, so the Reagans landed in Berlin on June twelfth, nineteen eighty seven, and they were taken to the Reichstag, where they viewed the wall from the balcony. And I've actually done this view. I've been up to the spires of the Reichstag. It's really fucking hot in there because it's all glass and <laughs> you know, it's sunny. It's just like it's like it's a greenhouse. It's really hot. <laughs> anyway, it's really cool though because you can see out over Berlin and you can see. The part of the wall that's still standing, and then which I actually stayed up the block from, I'll post some of those pictures too. And yeah, you can see where the wall was. And then in Berlin, there's actually in the ground there's like a brass plaque in the in the street where the wall was. So throughout the whole city, you can see where the wall was as you walk through Berlin. There, um, there's still bits where it's. Uh, yeah 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 like i was i my my where i stayed was like up the street from a big piece of the wall that was still standing okay yeah but for the rest of the city you can see where it was though which i actually thought was one of the coolest parts of walking around berlin because you could always see where you were kind of in relation to where the wall would have been and honestly you can tell where it was just without even looking because west and east berlin are very different
1: yeah, it's, I've heard the apartment blocks, especially in, yeah. the, in the east side. Yeah, so I
0: stayed in the I stayed in East Berlin. I stayed in an, an apartment block in East Berlin, actually. So they've converted a lot of those old apartments into like um, kind of like Airbnbs before Airbnb was a thing. It was really nice, but yeah, you can definitely... And well, West Berlin's just way more affluent, too. There's just a lot of money in West Berlin, and it's shinier, and you can just tell that there's been money there for a lot longer. Yeah, anyway... At 2 p.m., in front of two panes of bulletproof glass, Reagan began his speech. Among the spectators were West German President uh, Richard von Weizsäcker, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, and West Berlin Mayor Eberhard Diepgen. That afternoon, Reagan would say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We'll insert the actual speech there. <laughs> <laughs> there is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Later on in his speech, Reagan said, quote, "As I looked out a moment ago from the Reichstag, the, that embodiment of German unity, I noticed words crudely sprayed, or spray painted, upon the wall, perhaps by a young Berliner. Quote, this wall will, this wall will fall. Beliefs become reality. Yes, across Europe, this wall will fall, for it cannot withstand faith. It cannot withstand truth. The wall cannot withstand freedom." Cue the David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Reagan also called for an end to the arms race, referencing the Soviets' SS-20 nuclear weapons on the possibility, quote, not merely of limiting the growth of arms, but of eliminating, for the first time, an entire class of nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. It's kind of optimistic there, Ronald. The speech received relatively little American coverage at the time. Most Americans really didn't give a shit. Some American diplomats during Reagan's administration believe the speech really rose to its current status in 1989 when the wall actually just came down. So it's kind of one of those things that retroactively became famous, but at the time, eh, probably wasn't actually, <laughs> didn't really matter that much. I mean, it did matter, though, to the East Germany's communist leaders who really weren't that wild about it. Again, second Berlin Wall speech that they weren't super fond of. And they dismissed the speech as a, quote, absurd demonst- demonstration by a Cold warrior. Which I guess isn't actually an unfair accusation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's not absurd necessarily to tear down the wall. Uh, the Soviet press agency, TASS, accused Reagan of giving an openly provocative warmongering speech. So it yeah made a strong impression on the West Germans who were there as well. Uh, West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl said he would never forget standing next to Reagan when he challenged Gorbachev to tear down the wall. Kohl would later say, quote, He was a stroke of luck for the world, especially for Europe. I have some thoughts on that, but anyway. <laughs> I don't think Reagan was really good for the world at large, but anyway, <laughs> we'll leave that alone. Yeah. Um, so there's di- obviously differing opinions on how much of an impact the speech had on the ultimately, just dis- on ultimately on the wall coming down, um, or how much of an effect it actually had on the people he gave the speech to, because most of them didn't really want him to be there in the first place, <laughs> but... Uh, I imagine the actual, you know, tear down this wall part was more rousing than that. People cheered. There's video of it. (laughs) It wasn't like he was ignored, but uh, I I, I can see how that would be kind of an unforgettable moment and would probably be some kind of morale boost, even if they still hated his guts. Yeah, regardless, it does remain one of the most famous speeches Reagan gave during his presidency, I would say, Um, and one of the most famous speeches that was given during the Cold War, following in. Kennedy's footsteps of going to Berlin and poking the bear on their own turf.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is what they did. Yeah,
0: yeah. was, mm, you know, just walked up and just poked him right in the chest. (laughs) Like, hey, motherfucker, tear down this wall. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It's also funny because you'll you'll find out in in the second part of our season, we're doing an episode that talks largely about Reagan. So you kind of find out about how his rhetoric went from the extreme one side to the extreme other side. Kind of very flip-flopped. But yeah, so the thing is that this was like nearly like around the beginning of the end for the Berlin Wall. Now, 1989 was a huge watershed year, especially in Eastern Europe. I mean, we're doing a whole first part of a season about it. So obviously it's a big deal. In April 1989, the electric border fence between Hungary and Austria was demolished. This allowed refugees to travel through Czechoslovakia into Hungary and then over the border into Austria without much incident. This, of course, caused difficulties in all three countries and the East german czechoslovak border was temporarily closed until November 1st. Furthermore, East Germany was struggling to pay back foreign loans and even attempted to seek a temporary loan from West Germany. It did not go well. <laughs> Moderate n- members of the Politburo, no- notably Gunter Szabowski, pressured the longtime leader of the SED, Enric Honecker, to step down and announce Egon Krentz as his successor. This was an attempt to change the party's image. Calls for political reforms had grown, in- inspired by the Solidarity Movement in Poland, which still makes me really sad.
0: We'll that episode, talk about it's it. coming
1: guys it's coming
0: we'll still do it. We'll still yeah.
1: it it's just a little late it's still good it's still good one of the largest demonstrations ever recorded in Germany was at the Alexanderplatz in East Germany between 500,000 and a million demonstrators gathered organized by members of the East Berlin theater com- community this was the first demonstration in East Germany to have been planned by private individuals rather than major activist groups or foreign actors East German authorities allowed the demonstration to happen and was even attended by former East German government officials, including Schabowski, and the protests went on without major incident. On November 6th, the Interior Ministry made public a new travel regulations draft announcing superficial amendments purposely vague about the process of approval for travel between East and West. On November 9th, a press conference was held by the Politburo to announce the change in regulation. Schabowski was chosen to be the spokesperson due to his low level status on the board, which was perceived he would have less baggage. Schabowski was extremely sleep-deprived dealing with the ongoing situation in East Germany and the rest of Europe. I've seen some unconfirmed reports that he was hungover, but I don't believe that that is true because I could not find a reliable source on this. But he was for sure sleep deprived. Hungover
0: doesn't seem unreasonable.
1: It doesn't, but I just just don't think it's true because the only place I found, I couldn't find any backing up. NBC correspondent, Tom Brokaw described the room as falling asleep, including himself. When Shabowski was handed a note from the interior ministry, he had not known about the changes and was not further instructed on how to announce the information, which is pretty much something very dangerous to give to a sleep deprived human being. Yeah. <laughs> he read the notes contents to the crowd saying, East German citizens would be permitted to apply for travel abroad without needing to meet the requirements previously mandatory. He continued by saying emigration would be permitted at all border crossings, including within the city of Berlin. What Schabowski was unaware of was, A, the changes were to take effect the next day in order to properly inform and prepare the border guards, and B, that the permits would only be handed out temporarily. Oops. The stunned room, well, it's definitely the Politburo's fault for not informing him. Definitely an oops. So the room was understandably quite stunned once they found this out because it went it suddenly went from something extremely boring to hang Whoa, on yeah, yeah this is something so they weren't sure if they heard him correctly and then a reporter and it's disputed as to who asked when these would take effect shabowski paused then replied quote as far as i know it takes effect immediately without delay shabowski's comments were aired across east germany and across the world and thousands of East Germans gathered at the Berlin checkpoints, demanding the guards let them pass. The slightly panicked and overwhelmed guards were ordered via telephone to stamp the passports of the most aggressive protesters to allow them passage, but also denied them from re-entering East Germany. However, this dealt all with only a small handful of people and thousands of people remained demanding to be let in. No East German official was willing to order the use of lethal force knowing they would be easily singled out and most likely the crowd would probably kill them and the guards. The outnumbered soldiers left without orders as nobody knew what to do and it was clear a Politburo member at this point had made the announcement himself. Finally opened the gates at quarter to 11 p.m. East Germans peacefully crossed over where they were greeted by West Germans, waiting for them, gifting them with flowers. Citizens from both sides crossed back and forth and also began climbing on the wall in celebration. People also began breaking off pieces of the wall, beginning the demolition process. These people were nicknamed the Mauerspecht or wall woodpeckers. This was known as the night the wall came down.
0: Yeah, I mean, at that point, ultimately, the wall was being torn apart physically. Yeah, Yeah.
1: you like see images of people with sledgehammers, yeah, like like breaking from like like, sledge from like people with sledgehammers and jackhammers to like people with little tiny hammers just breaking up pieces of the wall. (laughs) Yeah, and then eventually, like uh, officials from both sides brought in bulldozers yeah. and other they made it
0: an actual process but yeah yeah i mean like the the fall of the wall was like that night was like really it was like a big celebration and like i think once people realized like we kind of just like spiraled right like a few people kind of made it across and i was like oh fuck we're doing this and it really just like snowballed until it was a big old wrecking crew at the wall
1: well, as you're like, as I'm like reading this up, it's I'm sure it's like quite I'm trying to make it was trying to make it quite suspenseful yeah. because like up until this point, you have no idea what the fuck is going to happen because yeah. this could have ended really, really, really badly.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, there was like still a lot of panic like on TV while they're watching people scale the wall and start tearing it down. It's kind of like, oh, boy, <laughs> like are all these people about to get shot in the face because.
1: Yeah, but no, the guards were just like. By this point, it was like, and I mean, guards. I think
0: too, yeah. I think when you reach a certain point in a sort of like situation like the GDR, and I mean, the Soviet Union reached this point too, people are eventually just sick of it. Even the people who are the guards or who are in the military, too, they're also citizens of the country and like they know what's going on.
1: Yeah, I'm sure at this point, uh, the Stasi started lighting trash cans on fire and throwing shit into it. Oh, because yeah. they knew they're like, it, it was this was it.
0: <laughs> Pretty sure, yeah. The Stasi were. Fucking with people till the end, but... But they, they were <laughs> I mean, they technically existed to, until after the wall, like, after the wall came down. They technically still existed. They just had a really...
1: But, I mean, this... Oh, yeah. Like, they started... They started thinking, maybe we should burn all the evidence. Yeah, we
0: should probably uh, get rid of this. I would
1: not... It would not surprise me if they, if like, they were watching this on TV and then just immediately started ransacking their headquarters.
0: I mean, they didn't entirely because east germany hadn't been dissolved yet yeah so
1: it's like an alberta government change
0: yeah a little bit yeah they still actually like they formally existed until the gddr like dissolved so they just had a really hard time getting informants (laughs) (laughs) i
1: wonder why (laughs) uh
0: a essential i did like i just i quickly just sort of read what happened once the wall fell and yeah they really for the most part yeah um (laughs) it wasn't there, it wasn't easy anymore
1: there's an image i wanted to use but it's copyrighted unfortunately
0: yeah
1: but what it is it's of a man uh juggling on top of the wall yeah because it was still up for like quite a while yeah. while they were tearing it down but people well. were literally just climbing up on it because it's like well it's a useless thing now
0: why not yeah.
1: yeah so this guy he's juggling on top of the wall and i just love
0: That's that cool.
1: image but what's also cool is there's a bunch of angles and one of the angles is where he's standing yeah there's graffiti on it because like i'm sure the all whole of you wall. know the whole wall was graffitied with yeah you know some stuff like amateur graffiti i'm sure there was a bit of like i have a bigger penis yeah. on there somewhere Probably. but in german but then uh there's some really amazing artwork on there and uh the, the one that he happens to be standing above are is an image of the logo of hammer from the wall <laughs> Yeah. From Pink Floyd's The Wall. That's awesome. Which I was like, that's freaking yeah. awesome. But yeah, so it was a big, like, yeah, like you'll see it. Uh, you, uh, we'll be posting mm-hmm. a video, the song that Lindsay's been hinting at.
0: Since Yeah. And all the David so Hasselhoff. Cool. I guess I should probably explain all the David Hasselhoff references. Yeah, yeah I think he, so, that's a good idea. I'm going to actually write about this more for the blog because I just didn't have time to, and we don't have space in the episode to really cover it, nor should it really be covered in all this depth but um in the episode itself but TLDR David Hasselhoff was really popular in East Germany um of all people (laughs) in all places David Hasselhoff so in particular the show Knight Rider was really really popular in East Germany and so David Hasselhoff was like a big deal he was a celebrity and so like East Germany was a bit different than the Soviet Union for sure East Germany was I think a little more similar to Yugoslavia in lots of ways where there was still some like filtration of Western culture into the country in terms of like popular culture. The Soviets were like very like walled off from it, um, mm. to some level. Whereas I think Easter especially I think just ultimately because of the proximity of East Germany to, you know, yeah. The rest of Europe. Also <laughs> uh, being
1: kind of the place where everyone expected the cold the like the first shots of the Cold War would be.
0: Exactly, yeah. So the you know some pop culture filtered through, and so yeah, Knight Rider was really popular for some reason, and um so David Hasselhoff was really famous. And so on the night of all this happening, um, David Hasselhoff had a song that he had released around this time. I guess so I don't really know. I think it was exactly. a year
1: prior or something like that. I don't so. know.
0: In he's, and around in this the, time. In the video
1: that I'm going to post on the on the I think song. it's from '87 or eighty eight. Yeah, like well, yeah, he says when I did this. A year ago yeah so yeah but I'll post the video um, of this
0: so anyways he had a song called looking for freedom it's incredibly fucking cheesy you're gonna hear it at the end of the episode it'll be stuck in your head forever I'm sorry <laughs> but also you're welcome it's a gem and I've yeah so it kind of sounds silly to bring up but David Hasselhoff actually came and performed at the wall basically like in a boom lift type thing <laughs> and like over this massive crowd of people and sang this song which like is absolutely a corny 80s song but when you watch the videos of it it actually is really powerful of like kind of this this random guy just well it's random to us it's easy to make jokes about david hasselhoff now but to be fair he was actually like a really important icon in the 80s um and it was it's really neat watching watching the videos of it because these people are just like there's so much joy and just like Uh, like, raw emotion and, like, this song, like, is really emblematic and it's called, like, Looking for Freedom and it's, like, so emblematic and it's just, like, the most perfect kind of moment. It's in every documentary I've ever seen of the Berlin Wall coming down.
1: It's a... It's very touching to watch. It is. It really is. And it's,
0: like, it's easy to make jokes about the Hoff and, like, the song is incredibly cheesy and, like, it's been... It's an earworm. Oh, my God. But... It's a touching moment. Like, it's it's actually really cool.
1: It's really, yeah, it's a um, strangely beautiful moment. That's why I've
0: been hinting at it the whole time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, like, you just see how happy these people are that yeah. it's over. They're like, oh, it's, it's over. And also
0: just, like, there's a huge amount of disbelief that it's over, too, I think.
1: Like, oh, it's, yeah. like, joy
0: mixed with, like, is this happening? I don't care. Fuck is it.
1: it. Is this a dream?
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, and then they saw David Hasselhoff, and it's like, oh, it is a dream. And then they wake up the next morning. It wasn't a dream. Holy <laughs> shit! Again, we saw the hoff. We saw the hoff. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's the first thing. They think of. <laughs> the, the fucking walls come down, and the first thing they think of is holy shit! Holy, we shit, saw the I huff. Anyway, but yeah, like they like people like a bunch of, I, I people got hand, like I I think it was a fireworks factory just like was handing out fireworks because you see fireworks firing oh, off, yeah. uh, out, like right in front of the Brandenburg Gate, which is where hoff ended up singing mm-hmm. uh but on the east german side because <laughs> so yeah it because was, he was
0: most popular in east germany yeah
1: exactly but i
0: don't know if he was ever as popular he in was Western, popular in all over germany well he was popular everywhere really. yeah
1: but all, but like germany particularly yeah. apparently it was like oh, as yeah. equally as popular he was a total popular.
0: Cult. he was a hero in germany I mean it's,
1: he still kind of is
0: oh yeah he still has a lot of cultural importance in mm-hmm. germany and I mean, ultimate, and his this performance, I think, actually has a lot to do with that. Still, like that will like continue his legacy.
1: Yeah, that. Really, makes, it's
0: just really funny that David Hasselhoff was at like a key geopolitical moment in time. Yeah. <laughs> the Hoff performed of all people of all people fucking David yeah, Hasselhoff. It's
1: Hasselhoff. He, it's like, it's just
0: one of my favorite quirks well, I mean, about history.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, he's like David not, fucking he's, Hasselhoff. He's mostly famous for being on TV. Like, I yeah. can't name a movie he's been in other than SpongeBob. But yeah, TV. Yeah. Baywatch and, and Knight Rider. And Baywatch Nights. I keep bringing that up because it's bad. But right. anyway, yeah, it's just like, just, but like, go, <laughs> keeping on the night, but going away from the hoff. Like, just looking at how people, how happy people are, like, strangers who never knew each other, never grew up together because they lived on opposite ends of the walls, just hugging each other, handing each other flowers.
0: It'd be pretty, it'd be pretty life-changing.
1: Absolutely.
0: And it's, like, kind of, I mean, I think this is always the case. Like, the night itself was amazing, and the whole experience was amazing, and I think there was a bit of a, like, honeymoon period, but it didn't last very long, because ultimately it was just, like, a lot of things needed to be worked out after that, that and it wasn't not smooth. (laughs) I thought you'd think that would be the
1: case. With the government, yes. Yeah. But with the citizens, it was... Like we, I don't go much into it for the rest of the episode, but like it was a huge celebration for a long time.
0: For a long time, well, yeah, but like there's actually a really large cultural divide. There's a lot of resentment of the West towards the East and vice versa. Oh yeah, but that
1: that happened later. Yeah. With reunification. Yeah. I'll I'll get into that. Yeah. yeah. Which I might as well start talking about it because like literally the the fall. Yeah. Well, the fall of the wall was literally the end of like it like it was the end of East Germany yeah it's just that it wasn't it it wasn't entirely clear to East Germany yeah so on December 1st 1989 the Volkshammer voted to annul the constitutional clause defining East Germany as a socialist state under the rule of the Socialist Unity Party this resulted in the resignation of all members of the General Committee and the Politburo two days later so yeah (laughs) Gregor Jassy was elected as the new chairman of the SED, and he was, he was a reformist, and he quickly accepted the party's responsibility for, in creating the economic crisis and declaring his commitment in transitioning the party's ideology into a more inclusive and moderate socialism. He and his supporters worked to remove the remaining hardliners from the party in order to soften the, its image and make way for a new generation of members." The Socialist Unity Party was officially dissolved on December 16th, 1989, the same day former moderate members of the party formed the Party for Democratic Socialism, or the PDS, where they disowned the Marxist-Leninist theories and adopted democratic socialism as its ideology, you know, as its name suggests. But, you know, as with parties, it's not always as clear cut. The new government lifted the ban on political parties and scheduled free elections for March 1990 and began the process of transitioning into a market economy. With the wall gone and the reforms in the East, Helmut Kohl, as Lindsay mentioned before, is the Chancellor of West Germany. He expressed interest in reunification and even cut short a state visit to Poland due to the developments in the GDR. However, during a phone call with the then General Secretary Egon Krenz. The latter asserted the idea of reunification was not a priority of the GDR. Cole reluctantly accepted this and instead moved forward with establishing better relations with the East. Citizens in the West were becoming more and more favorable of the idea of reunification, with up to 70% in favor and 48% believing that it would happen within the next decade. Furthermore, three-quarters of the country favored increasing financial aid to the GDR. After learning of these statistics from his foreign minister, Horst Telchik, Kohl gave permission for him to work on a roadmap for, to rewards reunification. After reworking a bit for his own to, and doing his own edits, on November 28th, Kohl read what is known as the 10-point program of overcoming the division of Germany and Europe. The plan was received well, except by the Green Party, who favored an independent GDR. The SDP was also divided on the plan, but it was received well by its leader, Willie Brandt, who famously said, quote, what now grows together belongs together, end quote. And internationally, the idea of reunification saw mixed response. Can you guess who was not too keen on German reunification?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Thatcher was worried that a uh, United Germany would create instant international stability and raise suspicions on the peaceful nature the United country would have. French President Francois Mitterrand was concerned the new United Germany would shift focus to its self interests at the expense of in- European integration, which was happening at the time. Like basically the European Union was just becoming what it is today yes. at this time. Gorbachev told Kohl he was acting, quote, like a bull in a china shop, end quote. (laughs) On the other hand, Kohl found support for reunification from George H.W. Bush, who was at this point president, as well as a large percentage of the German populace. On December 19th, Kohl declared to a crowd of over 100,000 people in Dresden, quote, my goal remains if the historical hour allows the uniting of our nations, end quote which was met with an eruption of cheers and applause. Seeing support for a united Germany grow, Mitterrand offered his support on the condition Germany recognized Poland's Western border and to not fall behind on, inter- on the integration process, which Cole agreed to both terms. And it's funny to say, accept the Western Poland-Polish border, but that was still a big deal at this time. Oh, yeah. But Cole couldn't give a rat's yeah. about like, making any territorial claims at all. He just wanted to reunite his country Mm -hmm. and his people. The term used to address this period is called Divend, which was first coined in a publication by Der Spiegel on October 16th, 1989. On February 13th, 1990, the Treaty on the Final Settlement with Respect to Germany was drafted by West and East Germany, along with representatives from the Soviet Union, USA, UK, and France in Moscow. The treaty formally renounced the rights of the four major powers on Germany and Berlin. It allowed Germany to join alliances and form ones of their own free from foreign political influence. Soviet forces were to withdraw from German territory by 1994 with the German territorial defense free to move into the former Soviet bases. Germany was to recognize their border with Poland and would accept the territorial change made in 1945, forbidding them from making claims to territory lost east of the Oder-Nies line. Meanwhile, in the GDR, the first, and as it turned out last, free elections took place on March 18, 1990. The three participants were the PDS, the newly reformed Social Democratic Party, and the Alliance for Germany, consisting of the East German contingent of the Christian Democratic Union the German Social Union, and Democratic Awakening all were right of center in terms of ideology. The alliance won a minority with 192 seats, the SDP won 88, and the PDS came in third with 66 with an additional third parties in the parliament. However, this this turned out to be inconsequential because on September 12, 1990, West and East Germany signed the aforementioned treaty, effectively reuniting East and West as a single country of Germany once again. And that is the story of the Berlin Wall.
0: And really like the first, well, not the first, but one of the first signs of fracturing of communism in Eastern Europe.
1: It was, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, what you guys would have learned in our first episode, what was to be our first episode, is that really change kinda of started in Poland and just kinda of rippled. Yeah. So a lot of like these places were inspired by the Polish solidarity movement. And which, I
0: mean, that's not to say that there hadn't been any history of protests in these countries before, because I mean there was a lot of unrest in Hungary in the 50, you know fifties that was crushed uh, and then in Czech- Prague and Czechoslovakia. yeah so, I mean, there's always a tradition of resistance and of, um, you know, not wanting this. <laughs> so it's not, it's not like this is, you know, new. It's just that it finally, the right conditions existed for all of this to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think we've probably droned on long enough.
1: More of an upbeat episode in a way. Well, at the end, you yeah. got really upbeat. Yeah. And... I'm- it's one of those things that it's just like, God damn, I wish I was alive to have witnessed this.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because all this was happening like around the time we were born, so it's kind of weird re-learning re-learn- like, it and being like, huh, I, I existed for some of this, or I was like super close to existing for some yeah. of this, but not
1: quite. I mean, in the next, our next episode's about the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, which is when... The way I describe it is it's when... Uh, Czechia and Slovakia realized that they're they weren't meant uh, as a married couple, but they still loved each other and decided to sep They decided to divorce, but they're still good, like they're still on good terms. The
0: divorce is what saves the relationship. Exactly.
1: Yeah, it makes yeah. their relationship stronger. So it's
0: a good analogy, but uh,
1: and yeah. yeah, a lot less violent than. Hmm i think anything else like anything that we've talked about like Any today other, yeah pretty much and like. for the rest of the season just about
0: yeah so uh with that i'm going to work on a blog post about david hasselhoff so stay tuned for that and we'll post some photos uh i'll post a few photos from my time in east berlin and uh some other things that we think are interesting and we'll be Back at you pretty soon with the Velvet Evolution. Um,
1: yeah, within a at least, oh, well, in a couple of weeks.
0: And uh, as always, please subscribe, rate, review, um, follow us on Instagram at, at Panastoria Podcast on Twitter at historia Pod. I tried Historia Podcast; it's too fucking long. <laughs> Screw you, Twitter. Um, <laughs> key content on there, like my updates about needing burritos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good content. Anyway,
1: other uh, some other quick things to mention. I'm going away to visit. Uh, in in news, uh, hope uh, people don't like certain people don't mind me saying this. I recently became an uncle, so I'm going to uh, visit my nephew for the first time at the end of the month. So, but the good news is we will have an episode recorded. And I will hopefully have it edited before I leave, because literally the Monday that I'm gone is the release date. So, as far as I know, there shouldn't be anything interfering with our, at least our next release.
0: I so, mean, we didn't think that about Polish Solidarity, and, well, shit hit the fan, so... Well,
1: that was very much...
0: Barring in, any, any unforeseen catastrophes. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. But, <laughs> we I mean, should be.
1: We kind of, I kind of have a contingent if that happens, but... And we'll, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah.
0: Barring any un, any unforeseen tragedies, unexpected moves. Yeah, from either of us at this lifestyle point, yeah. changes. Yeah, um, we should be on time now. We should hopefully be in rhythm with this season.
1: Definitely. I was. I'm surprised at how like. I, well, I'm about to say how short this ended up being. I thought we were going to be a bit longer, but we did pretty well. Yeah. I would say.
0: Yeah. So. All right. Um, thanks hope. for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, for, for sure. To talk uh, to you next time. Eh,
1: whatever, yeah. yeah, people. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much. This is Jonah and Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. We're leaving you with uh, David Hasselhoff's Looking for Freedom, as you can probably hear in the background right now. So, <laughs> you're welcome. Everyone. Have fun, guys.
0: Have fun getting that out of your head. <laughs>